I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To help us get to the truth of the matter of the situation with Russia and Ukraine and the United States and NATO, we have here today with us Dr. Seth Jones, who's the head of our international security program, senior vice president, CSIS, and the Harold Brown chair as well. Seth, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Andrew. It's great to be on. Well, let's just get right into it. There is a lot of worry out there that Russia is going to invade Ukraine. Can you set the stage for us and tell us what's really going on and, and what the United States' thinking is along these lines? Sure, Andrew. The, the challenge is that Russia over the past three decades since the end of the Cold War feels, and understandably in many ways, that NATO has expanded to its detriment. NATO has expanded up to the Russian borders, including the Baltic states. In addition, Russia has lost its former empire, lost its Soviet republics that have become independent states, uh, and then even some of the more recent ones like Ukraine have clearly moved over the past years from a pro-Russian political position and government to a very pro-Western one. I mean, the Ukrainians have made it clear that they would, in an ideal world, like to become members of NATO. So based on that evolution, the Kremlin wants, frankly, and Putin wants what it says, and that is an end to NATO expansion – a rollback of previous expansion, a removal of American nuclear weapons from Europe, and a Russian sphere of influence in Eastern Europe, South and Central Asia. And the Russians have also expanded into the Middle East and, and Africa. So in order to push that dialogue, they have built up an invasion force. Most of it is in Yelnya, which is near the Russian-Ukrainian border, if you look at the satellite imagery that we at CSIS have taken and analyzed, they have all the elements that you'd need for an invasion, uh, main battle tanks, self-propelled howitzers, Iskander ballistic missile systems, towed artillery. It is ready to go. The terrain between Russia and Ukraine is essentially flat. There are roadways that the Russians could use. So if they decided to go, they'd be in Ukraine within hours. So the challenge is that if the Russians, with this invasion threat hanging over anyone, if they decide to, to move into Ukraine, they could move in relatively easily and quickly. And that's kind of the threat that uh, the, there's a legitimate threat that they have posed on this broader peace negotiation. Seth, that all sounds really intense and dangerous and a dangerous situation for the United States and our allies. The Russian response comes, this, this Russian provocation really comes because they feel they're losing their sphere of influence and that most of the countries in, in Europe that are not currently part of NATO are drifting west rather than towards their sphere. Is that right? That's right. Andrew, I think in addition that Russians feel they have a potential opportunity right now. There is a general view that the U.S. is weak Again, that certainly is debatable, but I mean, there are at least two issues that have motivated the Russians to consider an invasion now. One is the pretty challenging U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Which in their, eye, in their eyes made us look weak, and thus they think they can do something here 
without a strong response from us. Is that right? We, we've lost the will to fight. Yes, exactly. The U.S. withdrew its forces. It was, pretty, it was a pretty shambolic withdrawal and obviously did not go the way that U.S. Uh, leaders had hoped that it would go. So that's one. The second is, you know, there still are political divisions within the United States. And both the Chinese and the Russians have repeatedly gone on social media and within state-run programming, highlighting the deep divisions within the United States, the low public opinion numbers for President Biden, highlighting that the U.S. is not in an ideal position. And actually, there's probably a third one, which is still some divisions within Europe on to what degree European states would actually be on board for a response to an invasion. The Germans, you know, are reliant as well as some others on gas and oil that comes from Russia. There's just a general aversion now to large scale combat after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. So, you know, there's a European question in addition. So Deputy Secretary of State Wendy Sherman, who's an experienced negotiator, is currently in Geneva negotiating with her counterpart from Russia. And where are those negotiations going? Have they have they accomplished anything to date? Have the United States and Russia agreed to try to settle down on this? What's the status of the negotiation? Well, the best that we can go on at the moment, Andrew, is uh, is what has been stated publicly. You know, there are indications that frank negotiations are occurring. I think that's certainly useful, that there is direct dialogue, that there's frank dialogue, that all sides are able to express their concerns, the Russians with Ukraine that is considering, certainly wants to join NATO and other European institutions, including the European Union. The U.S. has made it pretty clear it will not take uh, off the table the possible prospect of Ukraine. So I think having frank discussions is important, and that's what's gone on. I think what's less clear right now is uh, to what degree the Russians are going to be satisfied that they are getting what they consider to be serious concessions by the U.S. and European states regarding Ukraine. And I think that's the issue that is difficult to assess, which is why I think based on a range of what uh, Vladimir Putin has even written in, in uh, July of 2021, he wrote a pretty blustery piece arguing that essentially Ukraine was part of Russia. So with that backdrop, um, what's not clear is whether the uh, negotiations right now are really kind of a political attempt to provide cover. The Russians don't get what they want for an invasion or whether there actually is seriously room to negotiate. I mean, that's up in the air right now. And the Russians believe that Ukraine is part of Russia because of the historic ties and the Kiev and, and how it's been such a big part of their, you know, long, long history. Is there more to it than that? Well, the U Ukraine was certainly part of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. There are Russian populations and pro-Russian populations in Luhansk and Donetsk and other areas of eastern Ukraine. So, and, and obviously there are close economic ties in any situation like this where you have uh, borders between Ukraine and Russia. So pretty strong arguments that um, uh, of, of close ties. 
obviously a lot of that that argument discounts what we've seen with a number of Ukrainians is a very vibrant nationalism that has pushed back against this argument by uh, Vladimir Putin and and others. So the Ukrainians are certainly a very proud people and have pushed very strongly back against this argument that Ukraine really should be part of and, and is part of Russia. But Ukraine, of course, wants to be part of NATO. And, you know, going back a ways since 1997, when President Clinton and Boris Yeltsin agreed that countries in Europe could do whatever they wanted, they could go towards the Russian influence, they could go towards the West. There's been about 15 countries that have joined NATO. What is keeping us from bringing Ukraine into NATO now? Wouldn't that just solve the problem? Well, I mean, at this point, bringing Ukraine into NATO would be a reason for war with Russia. So I think at this point, they would invade if we made that decision. I, I'm nearly certain about that. So wait, they would invade and risk a war with the United States and its allies if Ukraine, which was initially promised when it left the Soviet Union, that if it gave up its nuclear weapons, it could become part of NATO. So the, and the Russians would go to war over this if we took a bold action like that. Yes, I think I think it's likely they the Russians would in part because because NATO membership does not happen overnight. There would be discussions on the specifics between Ukraine and NATO countries. So there would be plenty of lead time for the Russians to move. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean it shouldn't happen. There are a range of people who have made uh, arguments including Mark Kansian at CSIS in a in a study in 2021 arguing that there would be pretty serious economic and military challenges with bringing Ukraine into NATO. It would be a very difficult country to defend. And, you know, it's not clear right now to what degree the American population would be willing to, to have its soldiers fight and die. The U.S. is already exposed to some degree in having to support Article 5 if the Baltic states of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia were invaded by the Russians, the U.S. would have to come to the defense by NATO treaty obligations. Adding other countries right along the Russian border would be very difficult to stop and would bring the U.S. directly into a war if the Russians move in. So I do think there are some reasonable items to debate about the geostrategic military and even financial considerations that would have that would go into whether it's really worth expanding NATO because you are then at that point committing to fight uh, for that country. And, you know, there would have to be a robust debate in the U.S. Congress and among the American population. Do we want to shed blood directly for Ukraine? I mean, it's a legitimate question. So what are our options now in trying to stop the, the Russians from invading Ukraine and causing this, you know, pretty intense geopolitical crisis? There are two. One is, is deterrence. So deterrence obviously is preventing an opponent from taking an action, in this case, such as seizing a country. There are probably uh, two types of general deterrence. One is denial, deterrence by denial, and it involves preventing an opponent from actually doing it by making it infeasible. That's not going to happen in the foreseeable future. There, there really are no meaningful NATO forces in Ukraine that can deny a Russian military advance. So, and I, the U.S. president has already made it clear publicly that he is not gonna put U.S. forces in Ukraine in any meaningful way. 
So there's no deterrence by denial. The, the Russians, if they wish to invade, will be able to send in forces quickly. The more significant issue is deterrence by punishment. And that is essentially involves preventing an opponent, in this case Russia, from taking an action such as invading Ukraine because the costs, including economic sanctions or an insurgency resistance efforts by Ukrainians, become too high. And so part of the deterrence issue here is the U.S. administration has raised the prospect of economic and financial sanctions if the Russians invade, cutting Russian banks off from the global electronic payment system known as SWIFT. There have also been other issues raised, including providing additional war material to Ukraine, including air defense, anti-tank, anti-ship weapons, electronic warfare, cyber defense, those kinds of weapon systems that would make it difficult for the Russians not to invade, but to hold territory. So those kinds of issues could potentially deter uh, Russia. But I think the challenge is the U.S. has to prepare for the possibility of the Russians to invade. And that would get us to, if they invaded, how would the U.S. respond? And that's probably the second part of this is how would the U.S. respond and NATO respond if the Russians' deterrence failed and the Russians invaded? Seth, there's also talk about the United States potentially sanctioning or punishing Russia through denial of technology transfers and other services that the United States provides within the global economy. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure, Andrew. There has been some discussion about uh, essentially attempting to block the import of material, including technology that Russia needs, microchips, for example, from moving outside of Russia into Russian territory as a way to hamstring Russian technological advancements. And, and even just generally the ability to build cars, airplanes, to build computers and other high-tech systems. In addition, there's been efforts to talk about providing economic support, including energy to Ukraine to help offset having gas and oil shut down. And the U.S. has also talked about engaging non-governmental organizations, including the International Criminal Court, to document all and any war crimes inflicted on the Ukrainian people and to demand redress once the war is over. So not letting what happened in Syria, including uh, the use of chemical weapons, happen again in Ukraine. So frankly, lots of discussions on trying to raise this deterrence by punishment, whether it's arms to Ukraine or the, the threat of arms to Ukraine, whether it's um, technology transfers or technology imported to Russia, or a range of other steps. That's all part of a deterrence by punishment. Those are some pretty severe options the United States has to choke off Russia. Will Russia really feel the pain from it? Well, Andrew, it's a good question. The U.S. has imposed extraordinary sanctions against Iran over the past decade, really more. Even the current U.S. administration, the last U.S. administration, punishing sanctions. And yet the Iranians continued to advance their primary foreign policy goals, whether it was building missile systems or, or to advance their nuclear program or to continue to fund proxy and partner groups around the Middle East, in part because they got some sanctions relief from countries like China. So I think part of the question is, would Russia get help from countries 
outside of the West that could help fill in any gaps it had with the Chinese, for example, uh, be willing to provide assistance to the Russian population, whether it was oil or, or gas, whether it was uh, high tech, and be able to essentially blunt a chunk of the sanctions. And actually, there's a second component to it, which is also in a number of cases, and we've seen this with Iran, um, sanctions from overseas creates a rally around the flag effect within domestic populations. So it may be the case that actually Putin's popularity skyrockets if these kind of sanctions are put in place if he's willing to stand up. So it is not clear to me that, that the sanctions will have really a major deterrent effect. I think, you know, the prospect of Russian soldiers being killed in Ukraine, that may be a different cost-benefit calculation. Seth, in a forthcoming CSIS brief, Russia's possible invasion of Ukraine, you lay out the fact that the Russian military has several military options to advance into Ukraine through their northern, central, and southern invasion routes. Can you describe what all this is about? Sure, Andrew. If Russia decides to invade Ukraine, and in part if, if peace talks fail, the terrain is, I think, relatively straightforward if the Russians wanted to move forward. And I think there are at least three possible axes that we looked at where the Russians could advance to seize different components of Ukrainian territory. They might want to take all of it. They might want to take chunks of it. But we looked at a northern thrust, which is essentially attempting to outflank Ukrainian defenses around Kiev by approaching through Belarus. A second, which is a central thrust, which would advance due west into Ukraine from Russian territory. And then a southern thrust, which is which advanced through the Parakop Isthmus and involves amphibious assaults into Ukraine, including utilizing Russia's ports in Crimea, which Russia actually ironically annexed from Ukraine. So in looking at these invasion routes, what we argued pretty strongly is that if the Russians do invade along any of these lines, that the US and its European allies and partners need to be able to move quickly to help Ukraine conduct a resistance effort through a combination of diplomatic, military, intelligence, informational, and, and other means, and that you really cannot allow Russia to annex Ukraine. The world made that mistake in 2014 when the Russians annexed Crimea, and I think as we've seen, that did not satisfy them. So any kind of appeasement now, I think, would, would not work to the U.S.'s long-term favor. Seth, the Russians only have a limited window of opportunity to use these northern, central, and southern invasion routes, don't they, because of the weather, because of, you know, right now they have a frozen terrain. They can roll this heavy equipment over, but in a few months, it's going to be mud season there and they'll be stuck. So what is Russia's calculation with regard to the, the weather and the terrain? Well, in terms of the weather, an invasion that begins in either January or February would have an advantage of frozen ground. And frozen ground is important when you're moving large, a large mechanized force, Russian main battle tanks and heavy artillery and other heavy platforms and systems. Uh, it also would mean operating in conditions of cold and limited visibility. There are some downsides as well. But the reality is once February turns to March, chunks of Ukraine start becoming, we see a thaw, what's called the Rasputza. 
and mechanized forces get bogged down in mud. The, the, the real challenge is that as Russian mechanized forces advance on roadways, it is well within reason that Ukrainians try to target them with airstrikes or missiles, and that'll force those tanks off the road. And if the uh, fields that, uh, that Russian tanks try to move through are filled with mud, that is going to bog them down, which means if, if you're going to go, you're really going to go in Russia and move in in January, February, or wait to the summer. Seth, what do you think is going to happen here in the short term between the U.S. and Russia over this? There's been a flurry of calls between Putin and Biden. There seems to be on the U.S. part wanting to you know, end this you know, mini crisis, which could turn into a big crisis. What do you think the next steps are? Well, I certainly hope we don't see a Russian invasion. I think at the very least, though, that it's hard for me to believe that this crisis is going to end with discussions this week. The Russians still are, I think, not going to be happy with any Ukrainian government that is inclined to be pro-Western, and the current Ukrainian government is. So I think the question is, at the end of the day, and as we advance into weeks and months in 2022, do the Russians focus most of their attacks on Ukraine in the irregular arena where it's providing assistance, which is what they've done to pro-Russian rebels in the east in Donetsk and Luhansk? Uh, the Russians conduct offensive cyber attacks against uh, critical infrastructure in Ukraine, including causing blackouts, which they've also done. These have generally been perpetrated by some of the offensive cyber units within the GRU, Russia's main intelligence directorate, or the FBR, Russia's foreign intelligence service. They've already shown pretty easily that they can take out Ukraine's power grid when they want to, and they can cause blackouts and all kinds of other havoc through cyber. Absolutely. And that's almost the easiest way for the Russians to back down from an invasion and to keep a pretty aggressive, irregular campaign possibly to even uh, work on expanding the pro-Russian rebels' uh, control of territory further westward in, in Ukraine. So that's option one, is that they continue to do that. The second is that they just they don't feel like they were able to get sufficient concessions from the West in the negotiations. And Putin feels that if he waits another year or two or three, his situation is going to be actually even worse off. So now is the, as good of a time as any to move and that he decides to invade. And then I think the question, if the Russians invade, where do they draw the line? So we've actually looked at six options where, you know, they could seize all of Ukraine or belts of land between Russia and Transnistria or seize Ukrainian territory up to the Dnieper River and seize land to include Odessa, or they just move far west as the Dnieper River itself. So there are various options that the Russians could essentially usurp part of Ukraine without going the whole way. Seth, thank you for helping us get to the truth of the matter on this really complex set of issues and this very intense situation on the Russian-Ukrainian border. Thanks so much. Thank you, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. 
visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 